I, um, I invite you to open up your Bible if you brought your Bible with you. Uh, we're in the book of Romans chapter 3 this morning. If you have your electronic Bible, take out your phone um, and we will look at this together. As we've been going through this series together, we've been looking at everyone as a theologian and we've been finding uh, some, discovering in some unexpected places the, the theology is at work or at practice, at our kitchen tables, in around uh, the staff room, in the gym. It has been my experience that you hear words about God, which that's basically all theology is, words or thoughts about God. And you see it in practice even in places like prison. There is certainly some theology happening in the city of Rome near all of these little startup churches like Galatia and, and in Philippi, churches that Paul himself had been forming and shaping even though he had found himself in prison. Theologians like Bonhoeffer, uh, They've pondered about God in prison, people like Watchman Nee, um, even Dr. Martin Luther King, whose letters from prison and cells in Memphis I had a chance to see a couple weeks ago. Gospel music filled the air, yet surrounded by steel bars and concrete. The gospel is the good news of free grace. And so this morning we're asking, do we need to add anything to that message? Have we taken anything away from it? Do we remember what faith sounds like when we hear it? Romans chapter 3 starts out sounding like the blues, but grace can change our tune. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. <clears throat> but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is the God of Jews, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God whom we just justify, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised, through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Paul is not in prison at this time. He is, um, he's been in prison in other books when he's writing in the book of Galatians or Ephesians, but not at this moment. He's, he's on house arrest, most likely. Um, at his age and his citizenship, it afforded him a few opportunities. He would have been called what's a trustee, He's probably about 70 year old, something like that. He had his eyes set for Spain and, and beyond. 
rather wishful thinking, I would imagine. He had more days behind him than he had in front of him. And what he had left, he would find himself most limited in what he could do and where he could go. So he wrote. Theology, mostly, but in the form of letters to different churches. He knew that the churches needed a foundation, a base from which to work. And so Romans is his magnum opus, his big work, his greatest work. Not everyone would have seen it like that. I don't know that I would have loved to receive the letter when I got to chapter 3 like this. There must have been a lot of looking around during the first reading. All have sinned. Who's Olive? I think that's her over there. What did she do? I don't know. Just keep listening. He said, all have sinned, not all have sinned. Oh, what do you mean? What does he mean by all? All have sinned. Well, you, most likely, I would imagine. Well, that's not what he means by all. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. It's not many places you can get away with this. All this finger-pointing, not in polite society anyways, not for years. To talk about sin, that is a no-no. I think it was Moliere who once said, it is no sin to sin in secret. It is a public scandal that offends. Paul is a brave writer, but what he writes is not fiction. He ponders a real whodunit. Who is guilty, he asks. And everyone is the answer. It's like uh, an Agatha Christie play. In the end, everyone did it, right? A death by a thousand cuts. And the guilt shared so widely, it seems to almost disappear. Even at the trial of Jesus, it was the crowds around Jesus, the thronging crowds who cried, crucify him. Thronging, nameless and faceless. We prefer nameless and faceless, our crowds. But yet we sing, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Is it truly that all of us were there in that pew, behind that organ, in that church while Paul's letter is being read? Are we guilty too? Well, when it comes to playing God's tune on the grand piano that is the church, we always have a tendency to think that other people are responsible for the wrong notes. We have all sung in front of the one person whose lack of talent is only shadowed by their willing perseverance to aim at and miss the correct notes of the melody. Hard to imagine singing the singing of angels when the row behind you sounds like Mr. Bean. Don't turn around. It was Martin Luther King Day, MLK Day, a couple uh, weeks ago. Dr. King once himself was in prison. I had a chance to stand in the Lorraine Hotel, in the very spot where the man was shot and killed, whistling the tune of social justice, and the world just wanted them to shut up. That part of the world had been blaming the black notes for a long time. And in the birthplace of soul, music, and food, the king of rock and roll and the sound of the delta in my life, I'd never heard so many notes on the piano while singing praise and worship to God. Inside that museum was a, a small little chapel of sorts with a few benches for us to sit upon and listen to the music in that 
as it swirled around us. I couldn't help but hum and then sing, We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Now that we are all sitting in that pew, either in Memphis or with the freedom riders in that picture, or near Rome, hearing the words of Paul. But alas, this song, like so many of our old songs, is a song that no longer gets sung, All Have Sinned. It's not found in many top ten lists. And total depravity does not make for a platinum album. Yet it's the truth of the gospel. If we are sinners, we are in need of a savior. If Jesus came to save, what had he come to save us from? <laughs> the keyboards of our church, the instruments, I suppose, they have changed. We've gone to flashy red multi-voiced instruments that everyone craves today, to the 88 handcrafted Steinway keys of grand pianos, or the two or three manual Allen organs of our older established buildings. Our instruments have changed. Our music have changed, but the included notes have stayed the same. The score, the melody, it's all provided for all of those who take up faith and are willing to repeat its tune. We are sinners in need of a savior. All have sinned. This is our song. Turn to the person beside you and said, I am a sinner. Turn to the person on the other side and say, I am a sinner. This is our tune, like it or not. Yet we like to add or take away the something of grace to make us maybe worthy of the faith that we express. Indeed, we live in a broken world and it's not so black and white and at times can be all too black and white, and we prefer to mask ourselves in just a world of gray. And so what do we do with sin? We hide it in the midst of our literature. We put it on our movie screens and our television sets, and it becomes to us an everyday occurrence, but one which can easily, we can easily view from the outside. That is one way that we can separate ourselves from sin, those of us in the church. But Paul warns about this callousness that could grow when sin abounds. They even press him on it, indeed. More sin equals more grace, doesn't it? But nothing can be further from the truth. You see, God is holy. He always has been. God demands holiness from us, and we don't have it. And that's what Paul is saying. There is no difference between us, Jew or Gentile. At the feet of Jesus, we kneel at level ground. And what Paul is reminding them is that in a rich heritage of faith that can serve you, it can serve you well, but it will not save you. Verse 25 says this way, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his, righteous, his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness. Not our willingness or our ability to get it. We didn't add anything. We played to his right notes. And so no matter how many years you've been sitting 
behind the piano or even played an organ in church, Jew or Gentile, new or old, we all come to faith through the grace of Christ. And that is enough of a melody for us all to follow. But we like to tweak the message or fine-tune it, process it out so that the melody that God provides until it doesn't sound, it sounds polished like TV commercials that fill football stadiums with messages like, you are awesome because Jesus is awesome and he died for you. That is a message we do prefer. And we turn them into either poor theologies or into things of fiction. We aren't sinners. We don't like sin. And so we don't know what to do with it. If we call it a disease, hmm, that may be something we can manage. Maybe then we can just prescribe a pill for it or book an appointment, maybe a little retail therapy. You see, if it's a sickness, then we need a doctor. But if it's a sin, you need a savior. And we don't like sin because of what it requires. And if we're all guilty, then who can accomplish what is required? We need to be saved. And who can do it? Look around again and tell them, I can't do it. And tell the person on the other side, I can't do it. Our trouble with sin is knowing that not only are we guilty of it, not only do we need saving from it, there is nothing we can do that will add to the grace of Jesus that will allow us to achieve it. Nothing. Faith given by Christ to a fallen and broken people, cut off from the possibility of being saved, that is grace. But even when we try to cut ourselves off from the sinners of society, moving them into prisons or to books, we find ourselves referring to those sinners over there. We don't want to have that in common. But if we are all sinners, then there's nothing we can do to add to the grace. Not for me, not for you, not for the inmate in the public jail or the one who suffers in private. In prison, I found a group whom some would prefer not to see and maybe even forget. Yet they are a part of a church that reads letters about sin and depravity and total loss, and they know exactly what Paul means. Who read the words of Jesus, I was in prison and you visited me. Men and women who know how to look around and say to the neighbor, I am a sinner. And to the other side, I am a sinner. A place like that still exists. I just came from Parchment Prison, Mississippi State Penitentiary. Sunflower County is the only county in the state where every criminal is locked up. It's because it's the size of Peterborough. The prison is 18,000 acres, 27.2 square miles, 63 some odd square kilometers. Every single time you drive into the city of Peterborough and you see a sign that says, welcome to Peterborough, that's like you driving into the prison. That's the size. I shook hands with incarcerated men. Their pants, uh, Piano of black and white stripes. Come to find out there's other colors too. Green, it meant something, and red, that means something too. 
Every single one of them guilty or found guilty. Many had been recently released, but not the men that I had met. There's a whole new list of terms you must learn when you go to prison. <clears throat> I'm sure it takes months. I met a man in the state of Mississippi who is in what he calls the black hole of sentencing in that state. The laws have changed with administrations so many times that when he received his last conviction, he entered the black hole. It is a vacuous space where he couldn't be eligible for parole because of how long his sentence was and couldn't get a reduction because of how short his sentence was. He was in a place where the, where the courts had failed him. In one of his convictions, he was allowed to attend drug court or drug school to lessen his sentence. So he showed up on day one. Nobody came. Went for day two. The doors were locked. Sat outside, unattended, for two hours. Was picked up and brought back to his cell. Six weeks later, he gets a certificate and a reduction in his sentence. He smiled to himself. He didn't do it often. No reason to smile, and he hated his smile. But he chuckled as he put the letter under his mattress. It didn't take him long to reoffend, because the rehabilitation had failed him. I asked about his growing up. I had both parents, he said, but we were broke. In our school, in our middle school of 102 students, grades three through six, 91 of them went to jail. All of us used to walk together, black and white, like a keyboard from the ghetto, working our way, worming down the sidewalk to school. He said, everyone passed, but nobody made it. <laughs> Seems like school failed him too. Seems like there was a problem with the system. If anyone I had met with had the words to describe the guilt of everybody else, if anyone could have pointed a finger, it was Ricky. But then I asked him, you see, I asked him, is prison fair? I asked several other inmates the same question. He says, oh, it's fair that I'm here. I deserve to be here. I did bad stuff, no doubt. He smiles larger now, showing the, uh, the teeth missing from his struggle with meth. As we sat at that table, the apostle may well have been there nodding along, smiling with Ricky. Yep, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but Ricky, we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Christ. Parchment Prison was overtaken by inmates two years ago. For almost three months, they had complete control. Twelve people, at minimum, lost their lives. Inmates committed suicide for lack of medication, for mental health issues. They were trying to get the attention of a system that had shut them down, had locked them up, and thrown them away, all because the incarcerated church reminds those of us in the unincarcerated church that we too are guilty, that we know what captivity means, and we don't like being reminded of the slavery and the prisons of our own lives. Captive to addiction, captive to self-worth or greed, captive in the hallways of our school, captive in our nursing homes and hospitals. We may not be inmates, but I think we all know something of bondage. And that's what Paul is saying. All have sinned. Can we find hope in a place like prison? <laughs> Does grace reach so far? 
or do we need to create an extension? While I was there in that chapel, they had a piano there, and every indication was that it was a good one. I recognized the name on the front placard. The wood was nice and bright and clear. Someone had taken care of it, it seemed, probably belonging to someone's church before it had been moved to the chapel at the prison. But once it had been moved, I'm sure that someone missed and did not take up the necessary step of tuning it. I must admit that in the, in, I was anticipating a, a flurry of musical activity in the prison. We are, after all, at the heart of the Mississippi Delta, the idea of rock and roll and soul and gospel coming together to make the blues. It was the natural primordial ooze of musical creativity. And yet when I started playing that which was familiar to me, it was more jarring than a glass of spoiled milk. Oh, what happened? It wasn't music. That wasn't what this was supposed to sound like. I thought, I guess the only way to know if an instrument is useful is to hear it played. Theology is the same. It's funny. Even 500 years ago, they thought of faith as an instrument. We've been going through looking at the Belgic Confession, which was written 400-some years ago. Article 22 has these words. We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, that the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. And therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. Jesus Christ is our righteousness in making available to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us from all of our sins. Friends, faith is a gift, but it's a gift like a piano. It's beautiful unto itself, but it's a shame to never hear its tune. And while I played that janky piano, seemingly undeterred, Kevin, one of the, the field ministers, stood up. And while I was at this piano, Kevin came behind the pulpit of the, the crowded platform in that prison chapel. It was two weeks previous that we had the opportunity to hear on this stage one of the greatest voices that I've had the experience of working with. Dave Randall was here over Christmas singing, and if you missed it, check out the YouTube videos. But as Dave sang in this beautiful room and this beautiful system with this beautiful voice to a beautiful track, I could not help but smile as I fumbled along on this out-of-tune piano. And Kevin, with no preparation, no microphone in that motley brick chapel, doing his best to straighten out all the flat notes. Sorry, not, th not that slide, pardon me. We were in that little chapel trying to straighten out all these flat notes. And he starts to sing. Mary, did you know that your baby boy... <sighs> Nothing we could do. As beautifully as, as he could sing, that piano... Oh. At every turn, at every turn, my friends, humanity has tried. 
We have tried and there's nothing we can do to straighten out the wrong notes on our own. Sharp or flat. And we can seek to blame others. And all, all we can do is sing the melody that we're straining to remember in a broken auditorium, unmuffled speakers. But I look forward to another day when in another place our instruments fully tuned will join together in perfect harmony. I love, I love music, but I love what it unlocks. I've told people that the closest we will ever get to perfection on this side of heaven is how one note strikes another. There's something almost perfect in harmony, almost measurably perfect, and I cannot help but find something beautiful in the clashing together of the notes of Kevin's solo. And if you asked me today, which version of Mary did you know? Would I prefer to listen to again? I don't know. I'd be hard pressed to answer. The one thing that Paul drives home in his letter to the Roman church is that no one is perfect, but God can correct and bend any of those notes. There's something perfect in the unity and harmony of God revealed in Jesus Christ and how useful and accessible his message of hope for salvation truly is for all those who believe. I told you, some of the pants of the prisoner wore, they were green striped. They were trusted. Some were black and white. Those were mid-level. Red stripes were maximum security. But then they also had solid red for death row. It was 70 years ago in 1954 when the drab gray concrete building was first erected, seemingly around the gas chamber. You can put that picture up again. As I stood a foot from this contraption, it filled the better part of a, of a small bedroom. They don't use it for punishment anymore. There's no more comfort in the padded gurney that is offered and affixed to, a, to the floor in a small room just down the hall. Romans 6 tells us that the penalty for sin is death. That is what was on the line. And to pick up some of the imagery from Pastor Nicole last week, God is in his place, as he should be, as the just and proper perfect judge and he has every right to sentence each and every one of us. The chamber is prepared. But his mercy is that he sees fit to provide an avenue towards grace through faith. I love how uh, we preach as part of a team here, and the last couple of weeks I had a chance to hear from Isaiah, as pastors Ryan and Nicole brought us a message from the suffering servant. Last week, I um, also got to hear the, a message while I was in Mississippi from one of their preachers there, from Isaiah chapter 1. Look at these words again later. I'll read them to you now. But Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us settle the matter. God wants to settle the matter with us as judge. He says, Though your sins are like scarlet, so they're they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Listen. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. I can summarize his message this way. He said, so how do we get faith? He said, H-O-W, humble yourself and pray for forgiveness because we have all sinned. Then he says, what does Isaiah say? He says, we got to obey and be willing. we got to obey the call to grace through faith, and we got to be willing from now on to live for him. Isn't that good? How do you come to faith? You humble yourself. You obey the call to faith, the call to grace, and you're willing to live for him. Friends, he provides an instrument and provides the tune, and you're invited to join the band. There's only one condition upon joining, one rule. We can't add anything to it. We can't take anything away. It is by grace through faith that you are saved. And we are all here because saving faith equals grace plus nothing. And if you want to know what faith looks like, what it tastes like, this table is open for all those who trust in the grace that is provided through Christ's body and blood. And so, friends, humbly come. Obediently remember and willingly partake. This is faith. Let us teach it. Let us spread it. Let us hear it, see it, taste it, and share it. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we stand here before these elements. We thank you that we can taste your grace. And that we can acknowledge, Lord, how wide and deep it must be. For if all of us are sinners, and you saw fit to send your Son for us while we were still sinners, Lord, to cover the sins of all these people here in this room, the people listening online, the people reading the letter in, in Paul's day and ever since, Lord, we thank you for that grace that we still have access to. We thank you for your love to us. So, Father, out of love, we wish to respond, not as diligent keepers of the law for our own benefit so that we can show our piety, but, Lord, so that we can live out the things that you've commanded to us in faithful response to that grace you give. So, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon these elements as we're about to taste and see that you are good. Bless this food, and drink, that it may be multiplied in us like your grace. That as we leave this place, it may nourish us, not just for the calories that they are, but nourish us beyond. Thank you, Lord, and we pray all this through the grace and faith that we find in Jesus Christ.